The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Andrew Smith. He is the research director for the Rodale Institute's new vegetable systems trial. This is a long-term side-by-side comparison of biologically-based organic versus chemically-based conventional vegetable production systems. And what Dr. Smith is going to be doing is overseeing the project where he will be measuring soil quality, economic profit, insect damage and weed tolerance, plus nutritional quality, which is something that I'm especially interested in. So we're going to be basically comparing organic versus conventional vegetables. Dr. Smith holds a bachelor's degree in agronomy and crop science from Cornell University, He holds a master's degree in entomology from the University of Maryland, and most recently he received a Ph.D. in molecular ecology from Drexel University. Prior to joining Rodale, he studied integrated pest management in Guatemala with the Peace Corps, and he also managed a fruit and vegetable farm for about 10 years. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Glad to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I have to just ask you a little bit about your background. Now, I understand agronomy and entomology, so we're studying soil and bugs, basically. What is molecular ecology? Well, it's a fancy way of saying that we are using, in this case, genetic tools to understand ecological systems. And specifically, my work was in insects that were in agricultural systems in clover and alfalfa. Okay. So it wasn't completely astray from entomology and agriculture. Okay. Well, you completed your degree, and then you sought out employment. And I'm wondering, why did you choose Rodale? As you mentioned earlier, I was an organic farmer in Pennsylvania, so not that far from Rodale Institute. I was certainly aware of Rodale. And a talk that Jeff Moyer, our executive director, had given boy, I don't remember exactly, I think it was probably 2001 or 2002, was foundational for me to start farming organically. I was in between finishing my master's in entomology and trying to decide what to do. I'm an organic farmer with a research background, hoping to conduct research on organic agriculture. So I think it was a perfect fit. And this is a long established organization because part of my motivation was to maybe do research myself and on my own farm, but here we've already had the resources and the knowledge base and the infrastructure to really start that research. Yeah. Well, years ago, I visited the Rodale Farm in Cutstown, Pennsylvania, and I was so impressed with the beauty of it. And I remember the sign outside linking soil health, plant and animal health, And I thought, of course, this makes perfect sense. But if you can believe it, in my training as a dietitian and someone who studies food and public health, we didn't study soil science. We studied the food on our plates, but we really never studied how it was produced. 
And I think it's so critical that we join forces and cross-pollinate, which is why I wanted to have you on today really and talk about the differences that we might see or expect to see in organic production systems versus conventional and why that might be the case. I hear people are buying more organic food now. The growth has been exponential, really. And if we talk to consumers, they tell us, well, I think it's healthier for my family. But Rodale is the place where we've really got this long-term data showing the benefit. Right. And you really started from the beginning because our founder wrote on a chalkboard, he said, healthy soil equals healthy plants equals healthy people. And I think we really believe that, that the way that you farm or the way that you grow food really impacts the value of that food. And like you said, a lot of consumers truly believe that. But I think that we've, like you said, the the medical professionals, you know, the medical profession is segmented very often. And to them, spinach is spinach, tomato is a tomato. It doesn't really matter how it was grown. And then agronomists are completely segregated. They very often are solely focused on yields or the you know the total amount of production, which makes sense because that's how a farmer gets compensated. They don't really get compensated for the vitamin C concentration of their crop. They get compensated on the total production value, which is usually in a volume, not even in a weight. And for that reason that over the last, it seems to be, about a 70 years that we've had this decline in nutritional value. So as we're talking here right now, we're making the case for organically produced foods. The first thing really to point out is that the nutritional value of our foods has declined. I don't think there's really any strong argument to say that it hasn't declined over the last 50 to 70 years. There seems to be a correlation because that was about the beginning of industrial agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of heavy chemical pesticide fertilizer, what you call it, the early pioneers in organic agriculture called them artificial fertilizers or artificial manures. So there seems to be this correlation, but a lot of people will be quick to point out that that's just a correlation. There's no good hard evidence in it. So our question then is, well, what is it that's caused that decline? And some of the things that seem to make sense is that if you fertilize fields with only three of the main fertilizers, as opposed to something like a manure or a compost that has a whole mix and suite of different macro and micro minerals and nutrients in it, that you're going to start to decline in those nutrients. The other one that probably has some some good evidence is that as we breed for greater crop production and we're not breeding for flavor and we haven't really bred for nutrition because mostly we've taken salt, we've taken sugar, and we've put in other additives and said we can substitute for flavor. It doesn't need to be in the raw product. Well, it looks like if you want to get greater production, you basically want to get greater ability for the plant to use photosynthesis to take sunlight and convert basically carbon or carbon dioxide into a greater product. If we just take something like a grain. So what has happened is generally we have crops that have higher levels of carbohydrates because that's how we basically bred them as we breed for production. And if you're talking about something like a vegetable, we tend to breed things that have more water. So they're bigger, they're larger. They, If you're getting paid by the weight, that's great, but there doesn't seem to be a greater nutritional value in just water. Right. I want to go yeah. back to something that you said. 
about how we reward farmers for quantity rather than quality. And I can't tell you how many farmers I've spoken to who have told me that they wish they could be rewarded for growing food that was tastier or that did have greater nutrient density rather than just an extra bushel. And I am sitting here with the paper that is referenced on the Rodale website along with your vegetable trial. The Don Davis report, it's a classic report. It came out, I believe, in 2009, and it was published in Horticultural Science, and the title was Declining Fruit and Vegetable Nutrient Composition, What is the Evidence? And indeed, he says, we have seen consistent negative correlations between yield and concentrations of minerals and protein, and he calls this the dilution effect. This is so critical to human nutrition because from my view, you know, I've been a dietitian for over three decades. What I think I'm looking at is a population that is overfed in terms of calories, but I would bet there are a lot of micronutrient deficiencies out there that we don't even test for in a routine clinical exam. Right. And, and I use the term hidden hunger. I use that not for myself, but as I dug into this, there's other researchers that use that term, which basically means our diet meets our caloric demands, but it doesn't meet our nutritional demands. And I think there's a lot of work looking in developing countries and food insecurity, and and certainly even populations here in the United States, that we can see that hidden hunger is existing, that they meet their caloric needs, but they're certainly deficient in a lot of vitamins and minerals. And probably some other, what we might talk about a little bit later, some of these bioactive compounds, which we really haven't, we're really just now starting to understand the benefits of those. Yeah, I want to dive into those actually, because they fascinate me. And of course, we look at these bioactive compounds, and I know we're on the same page, or at least I think we are when I say these are the phenols, the polyphenols, the compounds that give fruits and vegetables their vibrant colors. And we know that they offer anti-inflammatory protection, anti-cancer properties. And I feel like these are the things that we should really be focusing on in addition to vitamins and minerals in our food. Will you be looking at those compounds in particular in this trial? That's probably one of the most important and vital parts that we can look at. If I were to just run down some of the nutrients, minerals is probably the cheapest to look at. So for that reason, it's been the most examined And I would say that we probably don't necessarily see this great difference between organic and conventional. It seems like if you go crop by crop, you can probably pick some crops that have good evidence that certain nutrients are higher. But I think the minerals is a little bit difficult. And then when you talk about the dilution effect, as you just mentioned, you know, if I heavily fertilize in an organic system, that dilution effect is still in existence. I get a greater yield but the minerals and the vitamins are diluted over that crop. So that's still an issue. Mm-hmm. Vitamins, if we go to vitamins, those are more costly to analyze. So there's less studies that have really looked at that. But if we start to look at some trends, vitamin C certainly seems to be higher in organic. I think we probably, with more data, we will be able to show that. Probably vitamin A. Um, and then depending on the crop, because some crops, like we're, currently examining our oats that have been grown in our long-term farming systems trial, and the B vitamins are an important part of 
oats, as well as beta-glucans and some other things. And then we move to protein. So protein is something that, to some extent, it looks like it might be higher in conventional because, you know, there's such heavy nitrogen use in conventional systems, and nitrogen is the backbone of amino acids and protein. So we know that if we, we use more nitrogen, we tend to have higher protein in our crops. If you take a little closer look, though, you start to see that the protein quality, when the, what we're talking about, the protein quality is the ratio of essential to non-essential amino acids. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like the protein quality is higher in organic systems. And I think, again, a little bit more data and more studies will help to separate those two. Right now, it might be more of a trend. I will also say, well, uh, since I'm an entomologist and we're, we're on this idea of nitrogen, that certainly the addition of nitrogen or synthetic nitrogen or overuse of nitrogen increases the insect populations and insect outbreaks, which then has the effect of needing greater levels of insecticides and then you have the insecticide contamination and residues that can be on crops. So I know it's not what we're talking about now, but I wanted to work that in there. Yeah. And as we're going to nitrogen, because this is something I've just recently been reading about, and we talk about these bioactive compounds, or some people call them secondary plant metabolites. They're like you said, they're the polyphenols and the the beta carotene and the lycopene and uh, anthocyanin and these different things that we know are healthy for people and we're just starting to understand the health benefits, those actually we have some pretty good evidence that those are higher in organic systems. And there's really just speculation right now about why that occurs. These compounds don't exist because plants decided that humans, they wanted to give them to humans to be healthier or animals to be healthier. Most of them exist either to mitigate stresses such as drought or attack from diseases or insects. And so the one theory is that, well, there's greater stresses in an organic system because you're not using chemicals to prevent those stresses from happening. So that that slight amount of stress creates elevated levels of these compounds. But as I was moving from nitrogen to these bioactive compounds, I was just reading recently that that also creates a dilution. So we know that if you use heavier levels of nitrogen fertilizer, we talked about the dilution effect. It dilutes minerals, it dilutes vitamins. It also has the effect of diluting these bioactive compounds. Wow. And which is another reason that they're probably more susceptible that conventional or non-organically grown crops tend to be more susceptible to insect and disease. But I was looking at it more from the, the this, these uh, bioactive compound production. Sure. Well, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. And we are speaking today with Dr. Andrew Smith, and he is the research director for the Rodale Institute's new vegetable systems trial. And I have to just say one thing, Dr. Smith. If you go to the Rodale website, which I encourage everyone to do because it's beautiful and interesting, and there's something there for everyone who eats, it's simply rodaleinstitute.org. But what captured my eye was the mission statement, and it says, Through organic leadership, we improve the health and well-being of people and the planet. And I thought, oh, that's my mission, too, as, a, as anyone who works in public health. So we're definitely on the same page. I am fascinated by what you are saying in terms of how we dilute the nutritional benefits of crops and how these beneficial compounds, these 
secondary plant metabolites or the things that I know consumers rush out to the supplement store to buy, like the lycopene and the the beta carotene and such. I'm fascinated that those compounds are actually helping the plant's immune system, I guess, or helping the plant fight off disease and pests. And yet, wouldn't you know, not only are they helping plants, but they're helping people too. Right. And I might, as we talk about this, you know, how they help humans is not my expertise, which is I really think what's one of the great things about, and it's not just the vegetable systems trial, it's really really the Rodeo Institute as a whole, Um, but I think it's more of a renewed focus on, like I said, we have healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people, and I feel like we haven't done the best job of proving or making that link to healthy people, and it's probably because we haven't engaged medical professionals to help us do that, right? So we have a couple initiatives that we've started with Penn State, which is right in our backyard, and I thought if I, if I could, I could tell you about that, and then oh, I could also do. tell you a little bit about the Regenerative Health Institute that we're starting. But a couple of projects that I think are really exciting are one is around anthocyanin, which tends to be in purple-colored foods. And there's a group of researchers at Penn State, Jaram Vanamala and Lavanya Redavari, who have been studying the benefits of, really they've been studying the benefits, like you said, of eating colors in your diet so that you mm-hmm. get the broad range of these different bioactive compounds. But they've focused in on an anthocyanin, and they've started to find that if you take extracts from purple potatoes, and just first to start in cell culture, it actually will kill uh, colon cancer cells. And so that's wow. one evidence that, hey, this has some benefit if this could be in the body. Because we know a lot of these are antioxidants, and they're uh, scavenging free radicals. And then they move that to mouse models that have been induced to have cancer and show that when you use these purple potato extracts compared to the standard medicines that are out there already, you actually have equally effective, they're equally effective as in reducing cancer. Uh, but wouldn't you know that there's no side effects because right. they're potatoes, right? We assume that most people can eat potatoes. And what I think is so exciting about this is you know, you can do a study where people eat potatoes. You don't need to go get special permission like you do for a new drug. Right. You can start to do human trials where people that eat purple potatoes and people that eat white potatoes, and, and they actually are starting to do that with people that have that are cancer patients. And where we come in is we're starting to ask the question, okay, well, we have the vegetable systems trial. We grow potatoes in the vegetable systems trial. Let's grow purple potatoes in the vegetable systems trial. And we can compare uh, several different growing methods, uh, organic and conventional growing methods, and different tillage techniques, mm-hmm. and start to see what is it about our growing practices that will boost this anthocyanin levels in crops. And then that, those will probably have parallels in other crops, such as eggplant, which also has anthocyanins. Yeah. So that's one project that I think is really exciting. Another one is with this amino acid called ergothionine, and another another group at Penn State, Hershey, and in the Penn State Food Sciences Department, Bob Bielman and John Ritchie have been looking at this compound, and another uh, Dr. Alan Phillips. And what they're finding is that, the, that this ergothionine, which we've known about for over a century but just never thought it was really important, looks like it has very important health implications. It's an anti-inflammatory. 
they think it might mitigate Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, but they're hoping to start getting that evidence. But it's only biosynthesized by fungi. <sighs> so we know that it, it, it's in high concentrations in mushrooms, but we also know that the soil is teeming with fungi, and the healthier your soil is, the more fungi is in your soil. So we suspect, although we don't know, that if you have a healthier soil with greater fungal populations, that you're going to have higher levels of ergothionine, this amino acid, in your crops. And we're starting to analyze that in our oats and our other crops in our farming systems trial. And we're starting to look at different methods like maybe intercropping mushrooms with tomatoes or some other vegetables to actually try to boost levels of this amino acid in the crops. But it really, another initiative we have or something that's on, on our minds is hydroponically grown fruits and vegetables. Yes. And this is an example where we know that it's produced by fungi. So how can it be in a sterile liquid solution? And how could the plant obtain it and take it up in such a solution? So, you know, we have no evidence about that right now, but it's, it's on our minds about how can we test that. So those are two projects that we're working on. And I think that we were just given a presentation about the Regenerative Health Institute. And people there, some people were health professionals, some people were more in the agronomic background, but you started to put some things together because the Rodale Institute has coined this term, and it was really Bob, Bob Rodale who coined this term, regenerative organic agriculture, where we, through healthy soil, we basically heal the soil, and then when we heal the soil, you start to have healthy crops. And Dr. Scott Stoll of the Plantrition Project, who him and Jeff Moyer, our executive director, are the leads on the Regenerative Health Institute, is, was basically saying the same thing. You know, when we, when we feed our bodies healthy food, we can not only prevent diseases, but we can actually have the ability to reverse diseases. So another project that we've started was the Regenerative Health Institute that would be housed here on the grounds of the Rodale Institute with the goal of educating, equipping, and empowering physicians and healthcare practitioners with the knowledge and benefits of, of a healthy, uh, mostly plant-based organic diet. I have to tell you, this is just the best news I've heard all day because dietitians go into this field believing that food is medicine and you are helping us understand really the power of nutrition and the power of growing our food well. And I can't help but think, you know, when you're talking about the relationships of soil organisms to these beneficial compounds in our plants, our foods, therefore, and us, I can't help but think, in addition to the detrimental effects of pesticide residues on food, how those pesticide and herbicide residues affect organisms in the soil and therefore organisms in our guts too. Right. And I was, what I was about to say was during our talk, we started talking about agriculture and how when you see something wrong, the traditional or the standard practice is there's a chemical solution. I have an insect, I spray something. I, right. I have a disease, I spray something. We need more of this fertilizer, we put it down in some sort of chemical form. And then we started to realize that there's a lot of parallels in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have this, we, we have a pill for it. You know, we have a remedy. And 
what we find in agriculture, which I think you're alluding to, is when we disrupt the ecosystem, we actually throw it out of balance, and then we cause what I like, you know, in insect world we call secondary pest outbreaks, insects that never existed were never a pest until we sprayed a chemical, and now we need to spray another chemical, and then it, just, it perpetuates this, this Ferris wheel that you almost can never get off. Yeah. And I think we're doing the same thing in, in healthcare, and we're starting to see that there's not only benefits to your body from eating a good diet, there's benefits to your body to being out in nature and right. to being connected to a farm because you pick up, there's things in, you know, I don't peel my carrots. Right. I want the soil to be in those carrots. And I want them, especially if they're from an organic farm that didn't have any chemicals on them. I don't mind eating some of that soil because it gets into my body, it gets into my my gut. And I really, you know, that's another thing from a personal level, am concerned about the lack of activity and engagement, people's engagement with the outdoors and, and nature. Right. Well, I think your work is simply remarkable. I want to just leave it open to you at this point and say, we just have a few minutes left. Is there anything that I neglected to ask you about your work or your projects that you want to bring forth or let our listeners know specifically about this new trial? I believe it just started in 2016, right? That's correct. So I guess I would just say, give us the time to get this data together. It started, I think the idea for the vegetable systems trial started 10, 15 years ago with researchers and board members that probably aren't even here at Rodale now, but it finally took some shape and it kind of took some funding from a source to be able to put it all together. And we're really doing this from an institute-wide. Everything we do now has this focus of how does this impact human health? How can this impact the nutritional value, nutritional density and I guess what I might say is that we can even reevaluate some of the work that's been done because a lot of it has been about the nutritional the concentrations, but I'd like to do what I might call analysis of nutritional density, which puts a concentration of minerals and vitamins into a per calorie index, if that, if that makes sense. So if we, oh, absolutely. It's one thing to say, hey, you have X amount of milligrams per gram of vitamin C, but to say you have X amount of milligrams of vitamin C per 200 kilocalories of, of what you're consuming, because then when we use that 200 kilocalories, because that's the standard daily caloric need. Right. Um, I'm not a dietitian, but does that seem right? Absolutely. You are speaking dietitianese <laughs> okay. right now, because one of our basic messages to consumers is make sure to eat a nutrient-dense and colorful diet. And we talk about nutrient density simply by saying, get the most nutrients, get the most bang for your buck. So you want the most nutrients in your calories. So absolutely. We unfortunately are out of time. But I want you to come back as this research progresses and let our listeners know all of the new things that you're discovering. I want to make sure that our listeners know to go to the rodaleinstitute.org website. I'll provide a link to that too, Dr. Smith. And I know you'll have updates and webinars that we can go to to follow the progress of this research. I just can't thank you enough. So we need this research so much right now. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank and 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And mostly, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Andrew Smith, Research Director for the Rodale Institute's new Vegetable Systems Trial. We will be following you closely. Thank you for being with me. Thank you very much, Melinda. I appreciate you having me. 